Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the final episode of Season 7 of Airtime. And please also welcome to the stage the goddess of everything air, Miss Kitty Goddard. That's a lot to live up to, <laughs> but I will try. Um, we have a lot of exciting things to share with you this evening before we get started with the interview. One of the very first things is, how do you like our new graphic up there? Yay. Now you're, when you take those pictures, you're going to know, oh, that was airtime, and that was fabulous. i got to come back. Um, first of all, I have to thank the City of Richardson Cultural Arts Commission for being one of our funders for this series. Tonight's uh, event concludes our seventh season. We've done 42 guest artist interviews. If you missed some of those, <laughs> which I know many of you did in the early years, they're podcast. So go to iTunes, look for airtime, and you can listen to some of our earlier guest artist interviews. Secondly, it's very exciting this evening that we have a first, besides that great graphic on the screen, we have a commemorative poster tonight in honor of our guest artist. It is called Sources of Inspiration because Sarah Ream is going to be sharing about her sources of inspiration when it comes to the creative process. This poster is the first, we hope, in a series of airtime posters, which will be limited edition. Uh, there are copies for everybody on the table out at the back there as you leave. Please take one. They're rubber bands who want, if anybody needs to roll one up. Anyway, and we're delighted that this was made possible by Adam Keller from Atlas Wealth Advisors. Adam, would you please wave? So thank Adam for being very visionary and asking what he could do to um, complement our current programming. We're very pleased by that. And a reminder, too, that um, the entire season of Airtime is underwritten in part by Eric Wise of Wealthstar Advisors. Anyway... And I wanted to give credit to and recognition to Liz Conrad, who was the graphic artist who designed our first poster for us, if you would wave. And Liz is not only a very talented Richardson artist and resident, but she also is on the AIR advisory board. So now, um, oh, before I forget, as I mentioned at the airtime in March, we have a sister program called SEED, which is an informal opportunity for creatives to gather and just talk about what they're doing, um, some of their challenges, resources, network. And we are tying our SEED program more closely to airtime as far as content. So this first SEED session coming up is going to be next Thursday, which is April the 20th, and will be from 6 to 7.30. And our guest artist will be none other than... Sarah Reem. And so this will be an opportunity for you to, to meet her on a more personal, up-close level and really have a conversation about what she does and what inspires her. The event will be at Marcus Cafe, which is up at Two Creeks. There is a, a handout on the table back there by the gorgeous posters where you can um, get all the information that you need. It makes sense to turn the poster around. Anyway, so please come to Seed. It costs nothing. Uh, you can order food and beverage. We'll be meeting on the patio. It's a great opportunity to connect with the, con with the creative and innovative audience that is here in Richardson. And now I turn it over to David. 
Thank you. I, I am consistently uh, impressed with the creative audience here in uh, Richardson, both from the people we get to interview and, and in the audiences. It is a, a true pleasure to have been the moderator for this season, and thank you to Kitty and to Airtime for that opportunity. It is April 12th, and today's tonight's creative guest is Richardson playwright Sarah Lawrence Ream. Please welcome Sarah. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, I'm on. So Sarah, in good academic style, has prepared a PowerPoint presentation for us. Um, but it's actually a really wonderful way to uh, visually and uh, textually uh, see her resume, her repertoire of plays. So I will turn it over to Sarah, and we'll skim through this, and then we'll talk. All right, thanks, David, and thank you to Kitty and Air for inviting me to this evening, and thanks to all of you who showed up. I would say at least half the people in this audience have been major supporters of my writing career over the years. I'm very grateful that you're here. What I would like to do is go very quickly through uh, my body of work, and uh, if you have questions about that, you can ask. David's going to give you a, a chance to ask questions at the end. Nothing too revealing or embarrassing, but you may ask questions. The first play I wrote was in the 1990s, and I wrote six plays in the 1990s, but the first play was called Liberty, and most people know that phrase, give me liberty or give me death, from Patrick Henry. Most people don't know that his first wife, Sarah, was locked in, a, in their basement in their plantation in a straitjacket, and she died in a mysterious way. No one knows where she's buried, but she died about the same time that he delivered that speech. So this is her story. And it, uh, it was my first play. It won the Southern Playwrights Award. It went on to be produced at the Kennedy Center. And I have retooled it in 2012. And it just got second place in a very big national contest, the Book Pipeline Award. And I'm going to be assigned an agent tomorrow to, to forward it in Hollywood. And what happened to Patrick Henry after she died? Oh, uh, well, um, after she died, he never again gave a great speech. And Thomas Jefferson, mm. Thomas Jefferson wrote, you know, I don't know where he gets the ideas for his speeches. This is verbatim from his memoirs, Thomas Jefferson, because the man seems practically illiterate. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> okay. All right, my second play that I wrote was The King and Me. And this was so much fun to write. It's a comedy. It's a send-up of Elvis and his cult followers. Um, it was chosen at a national contest for new comedies by Pegasus Theater and done in a workshop here in like 1995 or 1996 or something. And um, half the people in the audience thought it was an homage to Elvis and the other half saw it as the satire that I meant about a man whose the size of his belt was larger than his IQ at the time of his death. Yes, it was a satire. The next play I wrote was The Shoot, and I based it very loosely on Albert Camus' novel, Le Chute, The Fall. Uh, I totally reframed it. I just took an idea of the way he presented the material, and I thought it would be much more effective to use that on stage. It, it placed and it won a couple of national contests. It was produced in New York in 2014, and there's some people in the audience who actually saw that play. Um, <laughs> and. Um, it's, it was retitled for New York to all ye who enter here, but uh, it was produced at the Soho Playhouse. It had a three-week run, and the Soho is, they say, is the first technically off-Broadway 
Playhouse. So I was very privileged to have it produced there. Uh, the next play I wrote with my son, we adapted a Roald Dahl's Matilda. It was our favorite book uh, at the time he was in high school. And it was workshopped at the Dallas Children's Theater. I learned all about getting rights. I got rights to produce it one play at a time, one theater at a time, and it was produced a couple of times. And then uh, Danny DeVito came and bought Universal Rights, so that taught me a lesson in adapting someone else's work. Now, after Matilda, I went on hiatus for 15 or 16 years, and I didn't come back to playwriting until around 2013, and a friend of mine who directed a play of mine in, in Dallas called me and said, I want to get this play in New York. It's still my favorite play. And I thought, you know, I really need to learn how to write a play. So at that time, I enrolled in an MFA program, Writing for Stage and Screen in New Hampshire. And so um, I was there for five semesters, and I wrote four full-length plays. This is the reason why I went to school. This was my pet project, it still is. Yellow Rose, The Legend of Emily West. Uh, Chuck and I drove all over Texas researching this. Some say that this woman won the Texas War of Independence in 1836 for the Texans. And I work with a very gifted composing team. Terry Langfitz here, wave Terry. And Paul Gandolfi, and it's just been such a joy and a privilege to work with them on this project. We hope to finish by June, right? By June. The next play I wrote was, why did it do that? Sorry. Okay, we'll just do this way. Duende, Recuerdos de Flamenco. It's a play about two aging flamenco stars at the end of their career, and they um, reminisce on their careers through the Spanish Civil War and through the um, glamour years that they were in Hollywood. And it was chosen by the Good to Go Festival, which is a group that's trying to bring women's plays to New York that they feel are ready for production in New York. I was chosen with one other woman last fall, and in fact, she's already had a Broadway hit, A Tale of Two Cities. So the two of us have been in residency all year. Um, I went to Vermont and lived in a little hut for a while to develop the play. I worked, they assigned a dramaturg to me and a director and actors. And it's gonna be done in a, in a um, industry read in New York next September. Sorry for the technical glitch, it's just my fingers didn't work. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. And an industry read is, it's produced by a theater, it's a rehearsed reading, and then they invite all the theaters in New York to come and look at it and see if they're ready to put in, into their season. And last, last we have Bebo and Birdie. And Bebo and Birdie is about the last year in the life of Albert Einstein. On his 75th birthday, somebody dropped off a parrot at his front door, and those two became inseparable. In fact, it was the only thing that he ever really loved. He never cared for his family, was nasty to his wives and children, but he loved that parrot. And in fact, I have a picture of him with Bebo on his shoulder lecturing. But I had a great read in Dallas, and in fact, some people in the reading are here tonight. Doug played Albert Einstein right there, Doug Turner. And Chris Ebling played his best friend scientist, and so that was a really fun read. And that is, um, it was just chosen for a residency in Colorado. I went and worked on it again with the director and some actors. I learned a lot in that reading in January, and I'm now rewriting it and hoping to get it back into the market. So it's going to be produced in Tampa in next season, 2017, 2018. So now 
I'm done. You. All right. <laughs> you covered quite a bit. Thank you. So in, in looking at your bio and the, uh, your resume, the National Winter Playwrights Retreat called you a second wind playwright, which I found, thought was interesting. You, it, it's not like you have a second career as playwriting. You have always been a playwright. You started as a playwright and then have come back to it. Um, how did that work? I just um, sent them my resume, and they were interested, like the Good to Go Festival, in, in people who were of a certain age. <laughs> uh, and um, they were, uh, they were um, quite pleased to see the enthusiasm I still had for the craft and the traction that I was getting. So that's why I was picked for that residency. How is it that you, you, you said when we spoke that you've always been a writer, but what is it that drew you to writing plays rather than novels or short stories or poetry or anything else? I started out as a stringer for the Plano Star Courier. I won't tell you what year that was. <laughs> but um, I've always been a writer. And I wrote a, a novel that was a massive failure. It, I took five years to write it. I got the best contract for a novel any first-time novelist ever got, 350000 first press run by Tudor Press. And before, it was a novel about Chinese politics because my husband Chuck and I uh, lived in China. And uh, before it got to publication, Tudor Press went bankrupt. And the book was tied up in bankruptcy court and it never was published. So after that, I wrote the same book five times about entrepreneurship because my agent said, just send me a list of things that you want to write about. And she said, ah, that one, I can sell that one. So I wrote that book five times. Uh, it's an entrepreneurship book. You can still buy it on Amazon. It's way out of date. I think I did the last version in 1996, the Simon & Schuster version. Um, so then I came across an idea that I felt could only be for the stage. And I was so enchanted. And it did so well as a first play. I thought, oh, this is easy. But I was really enchanted by the collaborative nature of theater and um, working with actors and directors. And you learn so much. Plus, it's great to interact with an audience as well. Now, you spoke uh, earlier about that you're rewriting a play. What is it, for example, that you change? What is it that you have learned in the production that you go back and change? I have a, a good friend, Russell Davis, who was successful very early in his career, and he is still rewriting his stuff. <laughs> Once it's published, you typically don't uh, rewrite. But, um, for example, when I went to Creed and I worked with actors and a, dr and a dramaturg and I heard it, I really learned a lot from that experience. And I learned where there were some dead spots in the play, where there was some energy that came out of the play. And you don't really see that until it's on its feet. It's, it's words that come out of actors' mouths. How did you, uh, let's see, where, uh, da, 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 da. Oh, so our paths actually crossed in the 1990s when we were at, uh, when I was at the Bathhouse Cultural Center. How has, how do you feel your work from those six plays in the 90s has evolved over time versus the projects you're working on now? Well, I still think that Liberty has the best potential, well, maybe Yellow Rose, but Two of the plays are too dated, and they're in the drawer, and they're going to stay in the drawer. Um, but Liberty, again, just won a, a pretty big award, second place. Um, so, And some of them I, I still continue to work on and think about. How do you think the Dallas Theater has changed over the past two decades? Oh, I think it's taking a lot more risks now, 
a lot more risk, and there's a lot more new work being done all over town. Uh, Dallas Theater Center is doing a lot more new work, and of course there are signature theater, but I'm very impressed with some of the smaller artistic groups. Caramia Theater is doing some great stuff, and uh, Kitchen Dog is, in fact, they're, they're having a show come up, Brer Cotton. It's the best play I've seen in 30 years, and they're gonna be having it, their run for Brer Cotton is um, gonna be in June, so go see it. It's, it's a terrific play. Now, you, uh, you, you mentioned when you were speaking earlier that you got an uh, MFA in playwriting. I know there's, I, I got an MFA in directing. So, and there's a, some debate as to whether, you know, artistic talent is really teachable. Uh, what is it that you learned in school? Why did you go back to school and, and how did it change your craft? Well, you have an MFA in directing. Should you kind of tell me, like, what? Well, I want your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, this... This MFA was invaluable, and there's so many reasons why. It was a low-res MFA, what they call a low-res. You go for two weeks each semester, and then you're assigned um, two mentors that work with you and, and read and help you grow and point you to resources, and they also help shepherd your career. Uh, and then at the end of the semester, you come, and they bring in actors from New York to read it. And for my last project, Bebo and Birdie, they, act, they had a rehearse reading which is quite a bit different, a lot of movement and blocking. So I learned so much working with those mentors who really encouraged me and believed in my work, and uh, it was a great experience. Yeah, I certainly found it to be a, a refining of the craft. I mean, you bring a certain amount of instinct and talent and creativity, but it's the, the nuts and bolts and seeing other people's perspectives. Oh, and I, I have a great network of colleagues now that I can call on that are really helping each other in their, all their careers. For example, the, the production that's going to be in Tampa is from a colleague of mine that I met in, uh, at school. So, uh, so you, you mentioned several of your specific productions. What was, the, what was the first time either a reading or a play production that you said, wow, I could really do this? Liberty. And unfortunately, that was my first one. I thought, oh, this is the beginning of something huge. This is <laughs> but, going to be uh, easy. It's going to be so easy. But yeah, Liberty was great. And it was the first production, it was in a thousand seat theater. And uh, it was incredible. I got to be there for six weeks while they were working on it. I got to see the costumes being sewn. Uh, it was a great experience. Tell us about, give us a description of what the uh, play, how many characters, how does it unfold? Well, because I was inexperienced, I hadn't been to MFA school yet, I didn't know you didn't write a big period drama with 15 characters. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a learning experience. Is that part of the rewrite? Did you trim it down? No, I did not. I did not. And so how does the story unfold? When, 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 do, we, when do we first see Mary in the basement? Oh, um, well, I went to where she was kept in, in the basement, and... Uh, the docent um, kept saying, oh, we don't talk about her, and she was his cross to bear and all this stuff. And so I put that scene in the play in the beginning. And so I go down into the basement, down the steps, and then it goes dark. And then the same actor portrays Sarah. And then she's in a straitjacket, and she's being fed by her daughter. So you see her right from the very beginning. Yes, like page three. Wow. So uh, you, you mentioned when we were speaking that, that uh, the idea for that came from a dream. 
They'll, they'll, they'll leave if you say that. <laughs> like, blah, 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 blah. Um, actually, this is, uh, maybe I wish this happened more often, but it's honestly the only time I can say that it happened. Um, I lived in Connecticut. I was not a history buff. I started having dreams, disturbing dreams, about a woman in a white gown carrying a candle. I didn't know who she was. And she kept coming in my dreams and kept coming in my dreams. And I got to see the basement. And uh, I went, I just had a hunch and I kind of pieced it together. And I went to the Yale Library and pulled out a bunch of books about Patrick Henry. And she was like a little sad footnote. She was probably mentally ill. And, um, and then I went again to this basement and it was exactly as I'd seen it in my dream. And so I think she wants me to tell her story. So other than dreams and visions, where do your... Yeah, I don't dream about Elvis Presley. What are your sources of inspiration? Uh, I have to say I have a, a method um, of... And most of, the good, most of my good ideas just come out of the blue. I would have to say divine inspiration. I, just, I would have to say that. I, I don't sit at my desk thinking, oh, I have to think of 50 great ideas for plays and brainstorm. No, that's not how it works. All of a sudden, they come into my brain fully formed. And then it's just like um, I'm taking dictation when I write, when I'm doing good writing. Does the dictation for the flamenco show come in Spanish? <laughs> Un poquito. Uh, <laughs> Tell us about the flamenco show. Um, well, it's about, um, an, uh, the first thing you see on the stage is an elderly man playing the guitar, and he's come to tell you about flamenco and about his life. And then his wife, Loli, comes on, and she does some dancing, although she's elderly, but she's wearing this bright red dress that would stop a train in its tracks. But they kind of have uh, some relationship therapy on stage. They've had a very fiery um, relationship, and I really won't give away the ending because I'm hoping we'll get a Dallas premiere. So do you have a, in, is your writing, do you have a particular style in your writing? Is, is there, is your writing like anyone, uh, other playwrights or someone we would recognize from a TV series? Arthur or? Miller. No. Ah. <laughs> I, I, I have no idea. I mean, I, I've never my body of work isn't advanced enough to be compared to anybody by someone else, and I just write what I hear. So uh, tell, us, tell us about the projects you're working on now. You have several in the hopper. Okay, the one Especially the, Yellow Rose. I'm the one most excited about Yellow Rose, right? Yellow Rose. And um, we hope to get a reading in Dallas maybe at the end of the summer. We've had some interest in, from local folks, so I'll let everyone know. Uh, if we get that going. But getting my rewrites done on uh, Bebo and Birdie is important to me. And then I have so many plays I want to write. I have a long list of things I want to write when I get those things done. How do you write? What is your time? Is it in the evening? Do you sort of sit down at the desk at 9 a.m. with your coffee and just start? How do, you, how do you schedule time for writing? I write every morning, and then I do other things in the afternoon. How long do you write for? Uh, usually three hours, and you can't because you can't physically keep up writing after three hours. And uh, and I write whether it's a good day or a bad day, or if I'm inspired or not inspired. And some days I have to throw it all out and start over. But it's a discipline, and uh, I find that works for me. You know, it's funny. A, a friend of mine gave me a book on artists and how they create, 
and to give you some insights about how to arrange your day. Half of the artists were total derelict drunks and just also were great artists and very gifted. And the other half are very, very disciplined. They have a set schedule every single day, and that just works better for me. I've tried the, I try the derelict thing every now and then, but <laughs> it doesn't work for me. So I think uh, for any artist, um, how, how much do you believe of making it, of being a success, is uh, luck or being in the right place at the right time? And how much do you think you can actually, uh, hard work and learning the ropes and having a good agent um, and, and the business part of it is? I think um, no matter what your art form, you have to commit to spending 25% of your time marketing if you want to get your work done. And in the theater world, agents don't help much. They mostly do contract negotiation. It's different from a book agent. A book agent will get, your book will be in all the bookstores and all the libraries, uh, especially if you have a good agent. <laughs> but that's not true for plays. And oh, my favorite playwright is here, Fred Kerchak. And I told you I did a research. I went to Spain to research my Duende play. And Fred went with us and wrote a play about our trip which was produced at UT Dallas with student cast the last two weeks. And it was wonderful to see it. It was beautiful. Except my character was cast as Tilly, who was the obnoxious know-it-all, who corrected everyone's grammar and pronunciation. So it was total fantasy, total fiction. And shared that frequently. <laughs> So uh, you said we uh, have a great uh, wealth of questions in the audience. So uh, we're going to actually try something new, and we're going to actually come out here. And I actually want to start with Fred because I want to hear about this this uh, meta-analysis play about a play. Right? Tell us a little bit about the Spanish play. Oh, the Alhambra. Oh, what 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 would you like to know? I just loved the idea of a play about a playwriting process. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Sarah's husband Chuck and I just killed a bottle of wine. So, <laughs> and and second of all, I, I just want to say, Sarah is a force of nature, and I am so proud to be her friend and so amazed at this beautiful interview. David and Sarah, it, it was really a world-class interview and we're privileged to have been here. Thank you. And uh, I loved making this play. It, it, it was um, the second of a travelogue years and years ago at the bathhouse. My wife, Laura, and I did a, a play about our trip to Thailand. And I, th I thought, oh, I'll make another travelogue play because our, our trip with Chuck and Sarah was so phenomenal. And because I had was struck like Sarah was by, I wouldn't say divine inspiration, but certainly this thunderbolt of inspiration when we got to Alhambra. And I never thought to make a play, but when we got there, the play announced itself. Is that what you were saying, Sarah? About how plays come? They just arrived. It just showed up. 
Sarah has told me that over the years and asked me that over the years. And it happened, and you can't say no. And there is my answer. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Up in the back. The composer. I didn't hear the last part, Terry. How do I deal with composers that... How do you deal with composers who take away your words and put music in its place? Well, that's what musicals are supposed to do. I mean, you're supposed to convert as much dialogue as you can to music. What have you found in the process of writing? This is your first musical that was well, different than you expected it to be? I am always surprised what we discover when the three of us work together. Things I hadn't seen in the script before. Sometimes the idea comes from you, sometimes from Paul, sometimes all three of us arrive at the same idea together about how to make it better, a particular scene. And that's been a, a real gift. Thank you. We're still working on it. Have you directed any of your own work? No. Damn Not well. planning to, but... <laughs> If you're free. <laughs> <laughs> how do you work with the, how, I mean, what if a director came here and said, I think scene two and scene three are reversed and scene three should come first? Uh, well, I can just give my, <laughs> should I give the example of my New York play? Like, I went to New York to see this play, the shoot, and I had not seen it. I hadn't gone to the rehearsals. They didn't want me there. And... This doesn't happen very often. I mean, it's actually against the rules. You can't change a word that the playwright writes. Unlike Hollywood, if you sell a script, they own the script, they could do anything they want. But a play has got to be produced verbatim. Uh, so I go to New York and they, they added two characters that weren't in the play. One was a pole dancing stripper and one was a guitar player, a bass guitar player who played so loudly that people walked out. It just hurt people's ears. So that was a lesson. More questions? As part of keeping inspired and getting ideas, do you read a lot? And if so, what? Uh, Marsha Norman says if you really want to be a playwright, you should read four hours a day and very eclectic things. I can't achieve that. I wish I could. But I just read a wide variety of things, and I'm always learning about my craft. I'm always reading books about the writing process. I'm, I always read plays, and I'm going to talk about reading new plays here in a minute before we finish, but um, I'm always reading new plays. Do you have a favorite playwright? Well, this Terrence guy that's coming that did Br'er Cotton, he's my new favorite. I think he's going to win a Pulitzer for this Br'er Cotton play that's coming. More questions? Oh, and another, a better answer is the playwright whose work I've seen more than any other, and I've seen probably 25 of his plays, is Fred Kerchak. <laughs> Sarah, you're, you're my favorite Renaissance woman, not only of Richardson, but of, of everywhere that I've been. Um, so not only do you write plays um, and your myriad other tasks, but I know you play the harp, you play the piano. How influential is music as an outlet to inspire you to come back and do writing and all that other fun stuff? 
Well, I, I like to think of it as cross-training. And I know um, <laughs> Einstein is a good example. Whenever he had a really difficult problem with physics, he would go play his violin furiously. And so I really think it helps to clear the mind because you have to be so focused when you're writing. And I think it's very much like um, Zen meditation. You completely, all you can focus on is music and so everything else goes away so that when you go back to writing, it just flows. Do you find that there's a music in your writing? That there's a there's music in all of my work, except Liberty, but um, like The King and Me, lots of music. <laughs> But yeah, like Duende, there's a, a ton of music. And they, it's not a musical, but they sing a couple of songs. And so what about yeah. the music and how people speak? Just the music and the words itself, the rhythm? Well, I try to be a good writer in that it's not da 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 But yeah, you've got to have a lot of... Uh, and I try to get into a, a rhythm, an interesting rhythm. Like I, I use it as a percussion instrument a lot. Um, depends on what I'm trying to do. More questions up in the top? Oh, several in the back. I'll, I'll, get the, I'll catch the ones in the back, Chris. Thank you, Sarah, for a good talk tonight. Uh, you are a friend of mine, and, and there's a row of us back here that might be your non-creative friends. Uh, she, she has a few of those as well. But one of the things I have learned over time just in our friendship and just hanging around with you is how I can be talking about a normal everyday occurrence and you say, oh, that would make a good play. And so there's some kind of spark there that's going on that uh, you're able to take an idea and run with it uh, when, when these divine inspirations come. Can you explain uh, what happens next after that? You know, I, you and I are having a conversation. I'm telling you a story about my grandfather. And you say, You oh. have to write that up. You <laughs> have to write that okay, up. Okay, but, but what happens next after that? That's well, a great idea. Then I, what? I don't steal your idea. <laughs> you mean, what should you do with it? But, yeah. Um, I find that what Fred said earlier, when, when an idea comes to you, you, you just have to write it. You don't get it. It's not an option. And I think that story that you told me about your family is so compelling that Man, just just go in your back room and start cranking it out. Do you have to write it right? Do you have to write it right? Oh, there's an echo up here. Echo. Um, do you have to write it right away, or do you put them away until it's the right time to write them? I wanted to. I've been wanting to write Yellow Rose since 1990, and I've been reading as much as I can about the period, and just it was such a. Uh, that's really why I went to get the MFA. I had to get that story told, and I didn't feel like I had um, uh, my village that I needed, you know, the expertise to do musicals. And I got to study with Art Arthur Giron, who just had a Broadway debut at age 84 with his um, musical Amazing Grace. I mean, he's been a playwright for a long time, and he's written for Hollywood, but our, that's his first musical. Sarah, tell us about what you Barbara. learned from your first uh, production in New York where they changed things, you said that was a lesson learned. What was the lesson? Uh, to put that play back in the drawer. <laughs> really. I mean, I, I mean, I was very grateful for the production. Um, on that particular one, I don't feel like I learned anything to m take it to the next level like I had with a few other works that I'd seen done. Uh, 
that's about all I can say. Sarah, um, it sounds like a pivotal point in your career was going from being a stringer at the Plano Star Courier to having this novel that has this huge advance, and then you've got an agent. Tell me about Not how you advance, made that small leap. advance. Did, but did, well, did you have, uh, yeah, did you have um, inside connections? How did you make that leap from the, the newspaper to... You know, well, I novel? was working full-time at Rockwell Collins. My husband and I came down from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to work at Rockwell College. So I was working full time, but I wanted to write so badly I became a stringer. I, was the, I covered the city council for the city of Plano. Uh, but we, we moved to China and I had some extra time on my hands there. Uh, and my son was born and I wanted to be able to stay home but do something meaningful. So I started writing, writing this novel. And honestly, I worked on it five years and I came back to the United States. I went to the Dallas Writers Conference and my manuscript had won first place in, the, in their contest. And they had a lot of agents there. And um, the agent had read my manuscript and said, I, I'll take you on it. And I'm the only one she took on that year. But I got a really good agent through going to the Dallas Writers Conference. And I would recommend that for anybody in here who wants to write. It's much harder to get an agent than it is to get a publisher. And uh, so you can get, gain access to them at writers conferences. Final questions? One in the back. Um, Sarah, you talked a little bit about sort of getting in this zone of writing. And how often do you feel like you really get into it where you're focused on it and very, um, where you get in that zone where you're going at it and you're doing like your best work? And how often does that really happen for you? Um. It's rare and special. But one thing that I do that helps me is that I have a stand-up desk. So when I'm writing drama, I, I'm, I act it out and I move like I see it would be produced on stage. And that's tremendously helpful for me. You mentioned that there was something you were going to come back to and talk about. Yes, I have this big new idea. Actually, isn't my idea, but I, it's a big idea. I want to share it with you. I don't know if I can get this back up on the... Uh, thing. This has totally failed me. Um, okay. I got to spend a week with Nan Barnett, who's probably the most powerful woman in theater. She runs the National New Play Exchange. It's a database. Well, they do a lot of things. They have a big new play festival. That's where I saw Breer Cotton. And they move it around. It was in Austin in December. Um, but there's a database, and every playwright can put their plays on there, and it's like a matchmaker service. And there are 10,000 plays loaded. And they're all plays of living playwrights. So here's the idea. For $10, anybody in this room can become a member and read any play on there. So Nan Barnett said, you know, we, everybody loves their book clubs. And you sit around and drink wine. And you have a great time. And we need to do that with new plays. And until now, there has been nowhere where you can access new plays if they haven't been published. So all these premieres you can see in Dallas, there's no way you can read the play. And it's fascinating to see what happens with a play between the script and then on the stage. You can see what the director brings to it. You can see the set design and all that stuff. So um, I wanted to, if you want to sign up, it's going to be a real casual group. 
what we're going to do is read a play, see a play, and then discuss the play. I'm hoping with the artistic director of the, from the theater or the playwright. It's not going to be a 501c3. It's just probably going to be a Facebook page. But I'd like Br'er Cotton to be the first one, and we'd like to curate about six plays in a season. Uh, David Lozano is going to help me with this, Caramia Theater, and there's a couple of other people. So if you're interested, the only way we'll find you is if you sign up right there. So New Play Exchange, and where you find these plays, I can't get it on the screen. It's newplayexchange.org, but if you sign up, we'll tell you. And one more thing, and then Fred, yes. Uh, my husband and I, Chuck, own the Marcus Cafe, and... We have free dessert coupons for everybody, oh. right there in the pink elephant. We love Marcus Cafe. Thank you. We love uh, Jimmy Yes, he was just there last week. I have to say, the food at Marcus is out of this world good. Thank you. Did you pay, Chuck, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, actually, I'm the one who gave him the wine. But, but um, you said, Sarah, that you had a whole load of of ideas for new works, and I wondered if you could provide us with a teaser or a trailer or some hint of what your dream project might be. I have three. The first one is Hildegard von Bingen. She was probably the most, she was a polymath. She was middle ages, and she was an abbess. She was also the first known composer, and we still see Right. She wrote music, and we still perform her music. We still hear it. I heard it on WRR just the other day. She classified all the plants and animals in Germany and did these huge scientific books. She was a healer. She did all kinds of stuff. Anyway, I adore her, and I dragged my family, my daughter Amanda, to see where she was born and where she lived, and I want to write that up. So that's one, but I have several. So thank you. Thank you so much. So it's, it's that time of the evening where we do our top 10 short questions. 10 short questions to pour into your brain and uh, reveal your true self. Number one, pie or cake? Pie. Number two, Bach or Beethoven? Bach. Number three, your favorite style of bagel? Bagel. None. Number four, the playwright, dead or alive, you most wish you could meet. Um, I, I, I spent a car ride with Edward Albee. I, I don't need to see him again. Uh, <laughs> Arthur, Arthur Miller, probably. Number five, tacos or burgers? Tacos. Number six, the Eiffel Tower or the Empire State? Eiffel. Number seven, your dream vacation spot? <laughs> the Alhambra. <laughs> Number eight, the last TV show you binge watched? None. Number nine, one piece of advice you'd give to young playwrights. Oh, wait, wait, wait. What? Go back. Mozart in the Jungle. Okay, I, I, I did watch that. Okay. <laughs> the one piece of advice you'd give to young playwrights? Um, sit down and write. I mean, I talk to so many people who says, oh, I've got this great idea, but I just don't have time. I mean, if you're going to be a writer, you write. It's, you just have to do it. And number 10, Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind? 
Gone with the Wind. I've made my family watch it. And then, then everybody said, oh, phew, so glad it's over. And I said, sorry, that's the intermission. <laughs> they just don't make movies like they used to. Everyone, please help us thank Sarah Reem. Wow. I hope that this inspires you to come hear more about Sarah's Excuse me, Sarah Lawrence Reams. Her, her preferred creative process and join us at SEED next Thursday. Uh, again, don't forget to pick up information on SEED. Don't forget your commemorative poster, and these are suitable for framing. <laughs> and also, I have to say a very big thank you to everybody who is on the air board, and most of them are here tonight. If you would please raise your hands. Air Board members, thank you, because without you, this would not happen. Air Advisory Board members are here as well. Thank you as well. And also, our next airtime will be in September. As I said, this is the last one of Season 7. So in September, it looks like we will be partnering with the Richardson Reads One Book Program again, which has been very successful the past two seasons. The book this year is called Sing for Your Life. It's by Daniel Bergner, and it's a very interesting story and life journey of a very unexpected, successful singer. I encourage you to read it and then come join us for um, airtime in September. And with that, thank you all very much. Don't forget to get a poster. Thank you all, and enjoy the movie. And sign up for the Play Club. Thank you all. <laughs>